Okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we're thankful for the fact that we <clears throat> can receive our salvation by faith, that that salvation is uh, delivered independently of human merit, that we receive it only because of your illuminating our hearts and directing our attention to the content of that gospel, that it can become, as your word, the object of our faith. And since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we ask tonight that you would continue to illuminate our hearts to the content of Scripture. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We uh, are going to finish the, at last the section on Pentecost. And as we do, I wanted to uh, start off by uh, reviewing um, just a bit the big picture of how we're linking these events and doctrines. Uh, remember, we talked about the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. That's the event. And we connected that to the teaching of, um, of the um, judgment salvation. That what Jesus Christ's session did was partition the first advent from the second advent. So now we have an inter-advent period. Um, Tommy, could you turn the first bank of fluorescence off? I think we're getting too much reflection on the screen here. Thanks. Um, and this introduces, of course, a suspension of the, of the functions of judgment salvation because we saw judgment salvation with the uh, flood of Noah. We saw judgment salvation with the Exodus event. And we're seeing that same thing but split apart during this inter-Advent age where judgment is primarily focused at the end of it and the salvation occurs all through it. So it's like grace before judgment again. Same pattern of, of how God works. Then we dealt with Pentecost. And Pentecost, of course, is the coming to the earth of the Holy Spirit as far as his operating base goes. And to that event, we are associating, of course, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We went through the Trinity in the sense that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity as much as the Son is a member of the Trinity. And then we started in, one by one, going through some of the results of the Holy Spirit's work. And we talked about the acrostic ribs, a device to remember it with. Regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. And each of these has an image associated with it. The image behind regeneration is creation. The image behind indwelling is a temple. The image behind baptism is a, is a judgment, a separation, identification. And sealing is a seal. So if you turn the notes to page 51, we there spoke about the two different kinds of indwelling the indwelling of the Old Testament, the indwelling in the New Testament, and there's certain unique features. That's why we do these contrasts. Um, we want to appreciate what is unique to this inner Advent age with this entity called the church. The church is not the same as Israel. Israel is a nation. The church is multinational. Two, they, they don't even fit in the same categories sociologically. 
and they certainly don't fit in the same categories as far as what God is doing with them. So that's why the indwelling in that chart on page 51 is important just to review the contrast between how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament, how the Holy Spirit works today. Several key features of that chart on the right side is that it is universal for all and only believers. That was not true in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, Jesus said the Holy Spirit, uh, even to the disciples, the Holy Spirit was, is with you. He will be in you. He used two distinct prepositions to describe this. So that's the indwelling. And we said the practical, the, the practical effect, each one of these has a practical effect. Regeneration provides eternal life and the new nature in Christ. Indwelling provides the empowerment of that new nature. In other words, if the new nature creates the temple inside, the regenerate spirit, then the indwelling is the Holy Spirit empowering and inhabiting that regenerate nature. Now we have the baptism. And we said, if you'll turn to page 53, to that chart, there are the different kind of baptisms. And baptism is a tricky word. Remember we said the translators down through history in the English language have kind of cheated here because they never dared to translate the word. And so all they've done is just take the Greek word baptizo and turn it into baptize. And they don't translate its meaning. And the reason because oh, down through history there's been arguments about the mode of baptism and all the rest of it. Um, and furthermore, if you'll notice in the chart, table 6 on page 53, there's far more use, far more baptisms that are dry than wet. And the ones on the left side of that chart are what we call real baptisms. The one on the right side of the chart are ritual baptisms. Ones on the left side of the chart, they are uh, real and God is the agent. The ones on the right side of the chart is their ritual and man is the agent. So there's clear distinctions here in these baptisms. We are looking on the left side of the chart to spirit baptism. And we said that the spirit baptism occurs at the time a person is regenerated. On page 54, we show you that that is coterminous with the beginning of the church. The church began on the day of Pentecost. Didn't begin in Jesus' time. Didn't begin in the Old Testament. It began on the day of Pentecost when the indwelling spirit started and so forth. Now, tonight, uh, we're going to go on to the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's found on page 55 of the notes. And we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at some of the verses that pertain to sealing and how this is used. A way of studying these doctrines, if you want to approach the Bible doctrinally sometimes, is to look at the verses and look at what the practical problem was that was being dealt with when that doctrine was taught. So, obviously here we have Corinthians. Now, in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, what is he talking about? Well, he says, um, verse 7, verse 8, he's talking about affliction, both of himself and of the people in the church, mostly about himself telling about how he has been suffering. 
verse 13, we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. hope you'll understand until the end, just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud that you are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this conference, I intended at first to come to you, pass through your way. He's describing his relationship to that local church. Um, and he's talking about the promises of God being faithful. Then in verse 21, he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. So clearly the emphasis on this passage is he's trying to build confidence. He's trying to make them feel confident of God's promises, God's word, God's purpose. And then he adds in verse 21, because verse 21 is, doesn't end as a sentence, verse 21 continues to verse 22, which is a clause that describes God. So verse 21 ends, and he who anointed us is God. Then verse 22 is an exposition of the nature and character of God. How is God expounded in the passage? He is the one who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And the picture there is uh, financial transactions. The picture is the idea of certainty in a, in a contractual arrangement, a pledge. Um, and interestingly in this passage is that the God the Father, basically God here, is causing the sealing and the sealing is the Spirit, verse 22. You notice what he says. He says, the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So it's the Spirit himself that is involved in this seal. So in a way, it's connected to indwelling. That's why these doctrines all go together here. It's connected to indwelling. It's just another way of looking at it. And you'll notice in verse 21 and 22 that the Trinity is present. All three members of the Trinity are in verse 21 and 22. So here again, you see how the Holy Spirit's work is distinguished. Here, it's God the Father's work, but the Holy Spirit is the seal. So the seal is the Holy Spirit. Now, if we come to Ephesians, this, this issue of the seal comes up again. Ephesians chapter 1. And the, the language is very similar to 2 Corinthians 1.22. Remember Ephesians 1? He's describing our position in Christ, the whole issue of the church. Uh, that's the longest sentence. If you ever want a challenge in diagramming a sentence, try it. It'll take you four or five pieces of notebook paper, all skewed on a diagonal, before you get to the end of this one. And what that goes to show you is the brilliance of Paul. This guy had connections. I mean, he must have been the kind of guy that was very, very personally, he must have had a very intense personality to start with. And he's brilliant. He was well-educated. Uh, probably in history, he stands out as one of the, one of the top people. I really think God the Holy Spirit used uh, his brilliance. Uh, it's interesting. I remember back some years ago, Time magazine reluctantly said that one of the top most brilliant men America had ever produced was Jonathan Edwards. It just about croaked when I saw that Time magazine, 
of all magazines would argue that a Christian actually could be smart. But uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, was a brilliant man, and uh, he was one of these Renaissance guys. But Paul, uh, if you think about what he did, what God, how God used Paul, he was the guy that basically started the Christian faith outside of Israel. We'll see that a little bit more lately um, in, the, in the handout that you just got. You'll start to see the tremendous role of the Apostle Paul. Amazing fellow. If it hadn't been for Paul, the Christianity would still be in Palestine somewhere. It was he who the Holy Spirit used as the uh, point man in Christian missions. And uh, he was able to argue and take on any opponent. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he gets to the end of this. He's talked about the Father. He's talked about God the Father. Notice verse 3. Uh, he's talked about Christ, the Beloved, verse 6. He's talked about Christ, verse 10, Christ, verse 12. Um, and then in verse 13 he says, In Him, and who is the Him? It's a pronoun. Pronoun has to refer to an antecedent noun. What's the antecedent noun of Him? It's Christ. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, notice which comes first. You can't believe without listening. have to listen first to get the content. After you get the content, then you can believe it. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Now, isn't that interesting? That's the same word used back in 2 Corinthians 1.22. So, see, there's again this ministry of this pledge now, you can begin to see where this is leading here. This is one of the supports for the doctrine of eternal security. This is the security of the believer in that the Holy Spirit has been given as a pledge. He has been given as the substance of what's going to happen in the future. The resurrection body, the eternal state, and all the other stuff. But he himself is given as a pledge. This is the start of the work of God in our souls. It's only a start, but it is a start of something that will continue. So, notice the word uh, in verse 13, the Holy Spirit of promise, and then as it continues into verse 14, notice the word pledge. Pledge of our inheritance. With a view to the redemption of God's possession, really a reference to, uh, to resurrection, to the praise of His glory. And that's the ultimate doxological purpose of history. History has a purpose. It is not economic. It is not the proletariat. It's not the super socialist society. It's not the communist society. It's not the Muslim society. It is the glory of God. That is the ultimate purpose of history. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, is over in the practical end of Ephesians. And you'll see he brings up sealing again. One, in, in these first two cases of sealing, the, the flavor is to give Christians certainty, to give Christians assurance that no matter what happens, we have the Holy Spirit. He, and notice, he never asks us, never tells us, never instructs us, there's no imperative verbs here to get the seal. No imperative verbs to get indwelt. This is not an experiential contingency. 
This is not something subsequent to salvation. It's something coterminous with salvation. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, now he's talking about our sinning. And he's talking about what we do when we sin. And he says, what it does, it grieves the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, that day of redemption occurs again, just like it does in Ephesians 1.13. The day of redemption is the final finishing up. And we are sealed for the day of redemption. The sealing has to do, looks forward to a delivery of us in our final state. On page 55, I'm quoting, I quote Ryrie, who said... One of the best earth, I didn't indent this as a quote, so you can't, you don't usually see it normally, but in this paragraph on page 55, one of the best earthly illustrations of sealing is a piece of registered mail. When something is registered at the post office, it is sealed until it is delivered. Actually, only two persons can open registered mail, the sender, if it is delivered back to him, and the recipient. In the case of the believer, God is the one who sends him on his way to heaven, and God in heaven is the recipient upon his arrival. Therefore, only God can break the seal of our redemption, and he has promised not to do so. So see the power of this imagery of sealing. And that's the, that's the sum and substance. That's the power of this, this, this strong work of the Holy Spirit. So now we've got four... Uh, works of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to spend the rest of the evening on the fifth work and uh, the sixth work. So, in addition to ribs, R-I-B-S, we're going to add two more. So we'll have a total of six different operations of the Holy Spirit that define the church. It's not that you can get more. This is not an exhaustive list here. All I'm doing is giving a flavor for what samples of what the Holy Spirit does. So, count your many blessings, at least you can count to six. Okay, so the next one is I for intercession, and the one after that put SG for spiritual gifts. So those are the two things now we're going to add to ribs. And now we have six different operations of the Holy Spirit. Well, the major passage on the indwelling, on the intercession, is found in Romans chapter uh, 8. So let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 8. And we'll have to spend some time now in the, in the text and the context of this passage. Remember, this is the passage, the famous passage, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the call according to his purpose. Now, immediately prior to that promise that everyone knows, or should know, we have expounded for us the, another work of the Holy Spirit which is making intercession for us. So we want to look at this. In Romans 8, 26, let's, let's read, follow, if you will. Uh, well, let's go back up in the context just a little bit. Now we'll go back up to chapter 8, verse 18. So we get the flavor. He's talking about suffering. He says, I consider the sufferings of the present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to fertility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. By the way, 
Think of the, in verse 19, think of the ecological implications of verse 19. And I'm always amused, because in my profession, meteorology, we get into this issues of environmentalism and smoke dispersion and air pollution and global warming and all the other stuff. And so I run into this, the, the experiential environmental crowd. And it's amazing to me that they're all concerned about, uh, like the Kyoto Accord, you heard that, and everybody's against the United States because we didn't sign on to this Kyoto Agreement. Thank God we didn't because it's all speculative. It's based on this theory that global warming is caused by man. It's all it is, it's just a theory. It can't be proved. We've had global warmings before. One of the great uh, critics of global warming, Dr. Lindzen at MIT, who was the world's leading dynamicist in meteorology, wrote the standard text that all these other guys have to study to get to their degree. Um, Lindzen points out that we've had global warming before. And I think it was Lindzen, I'm not sure, but uh, I think he was the one that made the comment that he wonders how many factories, cars, automobiles did the Vikings have in 1000 AD to cause that previous global warming. See, we don't, it's maybe warming, and that's even problematical because the top of the atmosphere has absolutely zero warming for the last 50 years, hasn't changed a bit. So, these people get all upset over all this stuff. And what we ought to be upset about, folks, is the real ecological fallout of man. We just didn't cause global warming. We screwed up the whole universe. And we're not talking about Coke bottles on the side of the road here. In verse 19, we're talking about the fact that we wrecked civilization by our rebellion against God. So yeah, we're ecologically responsible, but see, the ecologists don't want to admit that kind of ecological responsibility because to do so would introduce God into the scene. And if you introduce that kind of a problem ecologically, the solution isn't a piece of legislation, it's not a Kyoto Accord, it's on your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't talk about that, of course. So therefore, we don't want to deal with the real ecological issue. So that's the whole problem. The environment's corrupt. It's falling apart. Um, you notice he goes on and says, uh, verse 21, the creation itself will be set free. Will be set free means it's not set free now. Ecological effect of the fall in Genesis 3. To corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, as goes man, so goes nature. Remember the doctrine, judgment, salvation? The fifth point in that doctrine was judgment, salvation always involves nature as well as man. Think about the two illustrations of the doctrine of judgment, salvation. What are they again? Flood of Noah. Was nature involved in the flood of Noah? You bet. What was the second one? Exodus. Was nature involved in the Exodus? Absolutely. When Christ comes again, is nature going to be involved? You bet. See, nature is always involved in this because who was commissioned by virtue of Genesis 1 to be the Lord of creation? Little L. It was man. And when man fell, nature suffered. And that's why it says, 
Verse 21, when man gets, his, gets straightened out in Christ, then nature will get straightened out. Not until. Verse 22, another comment on our ecological environment. We know the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth until now. And not only this, now watch it now, we're getting close to our passage. Not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Remember the word pledge? There, there's the same kind of idea. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the first fruits. What was first fruits? First harvest. It's the first sign that you're going to actually have production. When the farmer gets his first fruits, at least he can sigh somewhat a sigh of relief. He can get a hailstorm next week, but at least he's got the crop up to the point where he's getting some production off of it. So here again is the idea. We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. So the production of the Christian church is actually started with the indwelling Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, comma, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Remember we saw that in all those passages on sealing, didn't we? The redemption of our body, the redemption of our body, is a reference to resurrection. So, at this point is the time that Jesus Christ died, but as far as our personal life is concerned, this is the point when you became a Christian. When you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in a hundredth of a second, you were regenerated, you were indwelt, you were baptized, you were sealed. You couldn't feel any of it. But it happened at the time that you trusted in Christ. This is your whole Christian life until the time you die. Now, it could be if, if you lived at the rapture that you will not die, you will, boom, go like that. But if you die and your body goes to the grave and your spirit goes to be with the Lord, it can't stay separated like that. And so at the rapture, boom, down you come and up comes your body again and now we resurrect it. So, it's body, soul, and spirit, always. Now, the redemption of our body is this little deal, right there. So, he's saying that we have the first fruits, and it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that guarantees the resurrection. Because what he starts, he's going to finish. Okay? So here's the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit here, R-I-B-S. It all happens at the time that we become a Christian. The Holy Spirit now is indwelling you. Boom, 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 like this. He is the first fruits of the redemption of the body. When we sin, we grieve Him. You know, he, we may not be the greatest place for Him, but He is ordered by the Father to be in us. Now, that sets the tone for this intercession thing. And I, I, I spent some time here because this is a passage you have to watch because people hit this passage driving 45 miles an hour and don't pay attention to the text. There's some powerful truths in this text, but it's not going to come off unless you take your time and think your way through the context. That's what we want to do tonight. Verse 24. 
In hope we have been saved. Notice it's past tense. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now what are we waiting for? In context. We just spent the time in verse 23. He told us the resurrection. So what Paul is saying is, during the interim of the Christian life, the period from the time we are born again until the time we die or the rapture, whichever occurs first, we are in a contaminated environment. We've just gone through verse after verse of the fact that we live in a fallen universe with a fallen body, with sin all around us, and in need of sanctification ourselves. Now, the regenerate nature isn't. Remember R? The Holy indwelling says the Holy Spirit is in R, in the regenerate nature. Regenerate nature doesn't need to be sanctified in that sense. Get away from sin. But what else has to? We're in a constant struggle here with, because of the body, because of the environment, and so on. And so we're in suffering. And that's what he's saying. The whole Christian life, from the time we're born again to the time we die or the rapture, all that period of time is a period of groaning and travail. Now, verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now, it's in the same way what? Well, he's just got through talking about hope. He's talked about the fact that the Spirit, in verse 23... Uh, occupies us. We're waiting eagerly for the adoption. And he says, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, the weakness being defined in context as our present life in the fallen world with a fallen body that's falling apart. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit helps our weakness, including the sin, sin in our life. Now he says... For we know not how to pray as we should. Now, in the context, what's the issue over which the prayer probably is about? In verse 21, 22, 23, 24. It's over the struggles in the Christian life. It's over the struggles of here we have one foot, as it were, in heaven and the other foot on earth. And he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we know not how to pray. Presumably we're praying over issues that we would call sanctification issues. We know not how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. My translation says, I'll come up to that one again. We'll, we'll, we'll get that. But let's finish the sentence, verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the question, an incidental question here is, who is it who searches the hearts? Well, it's Yahweh in the Old Testament, and in the book of Revelation, chapter 223, that's a title of the Son now, this is an interesting thing because usually you would think the intercession would be directed to the Father. But here's the believer. Let's, let's draw it over here on the margin. Here's the believer. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. 
get it here. The passage says that there is a prayer chain going up to the Father's right hand where the Lord Jesus Christ sits. The Holy Spirit is making the intercession. We're not. This is not our intercession. This is intercession He is doing for us. Now it says, for groanings that cannot be uttered. That is the clause that has misled many, many people who who hit this passage too fast and, and don't pay attention. Because it's usually interpreted to mean some sort of angelic language, some sort of tongues phenomena, or something else like that. In other words, the Holy Spirit gets hold of you and he, you don't know how to pray, and so he prays through this, this hoopla. If people would just simply take a concordance and look up what the words mean, they never would have gotten to this because what this phrase, too deep for words, is, it's used also of Paul when he went to heaven. And it wasn't that he... he, he, he couldn't understand what was said. The issue there is, it's not lawful. This is a, a word which was used, uh, some of the word usages, if you look it up in classical Greek and the, the papyri, it was used of secret fraternities that had a password. And that you were not allowed, if you were in the, in the fraternity, to, to talk and reveal your password, anybody outside the fraternity. It wasn't that you couldn't say it. It was because of security that you couldn't leak this password out. Now, think about this for a minute. Here's, here you are, I am, believers. The Holy Spirit is in us. That's indwelling. So the Holy Spirit's sitting here and he's, he knows the goal. He knows where we should be. He knows where the Father wants to take us. We don't know how to pray regarding all the stuff in verse 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25. But He does. And so He starts making intercession for us, each one of us individually, with a secure communication. Now, why do you suppose that this is secure calm? This is one of these little neat, neat little truths of the Word of God. The more you dig in it, the more you're blessed. Secure calm. Those of you who've been in the military know what secure communications are. And what the picture here is, is that this praying is inaudible to us. And who else do you suppose it's inaudible to and cannot be found out? Satan. This is a prayer from the Holy Spirit in the middle of a satanic fallen world praying about things. Here's believer A and believer A has a sin problem out here and he's got a behavior pattern and the Holy Spirit is praying concerning sanctification of this little issue in this guy's life and says, well, we've got to deal with this little problem. So, he passes a message up to the Son, who, by the way, in relation to the body is what? In the imagery of the New Testament. 
the head, the head and the body. Now, our heads and bodies are connected with a nerve system, right? One of the calm links. Well, that's a picture of the body of Christ working. That's a picture most people don't see. But the head is connected to the body. And the calm that's going on here apparently is largely due to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he is having this secure communication with the Lord Jesus Christ concerning our situation in this world. Because we don't know, we don't have half a clue what's happening. Remember back when we dealt with the, um, um, uh, you remember when we dealt with the fall and we went through and we said there were uh, many reasons why we suffer? Remember I listed uh, I had a big long list. I said there were about uh, nine reasons why we suffer. This is just to illustrate the point. Let's look at suffering. We categorized the suffering in the Bible for believers, or suffering period, in terms of suffering that is somehow logically related. It's coherently related to something we have done. So, we'll say, we'll call this deserved suffering, and what we call it undeserved suffering. Meaning that it's not really related. It's sort of like that uh, thing where the blind man, you know, did he sin, Lord? And he said, no, he didn't sin. But he's suffering. So, how do you explain that? Well, there are at least four, one, two, three, four reasons, think of some more, but at least there's four reasons why we suffer because we deserve, deserve it. One is, we deserve it because in union with Adam, we are part of the fall. And so that's why we die. That's why you and I and everybody has a fallen body. This is why this thing's falling apart. It's because we have, either it's a toxin in the DNA, it's a deformation biologically in our tissues that leads to death. I always laugh at people that say, I don't believe in the death penalty. What do you think we all are under? Everybody's under a death penalty. It's just a little sooner than some people, that's all. But everybody has a death penalty except Lord Jesus Christ. He chose to die. But everybody else deserves to die. So, number one, we all suffer because of our union with Adam. Another reason for suffering is because of our own personal stupidity and rebellion. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. If you've been a Christian more than two years, you've committed some idiotic, stupid thing, and you're probably paying for it for months afterwards. That's just the way it is. Sometimes years, sometimes it you know it stays with you the rest of your life. You know, Christians fornicate and get AIDS and die. Same as unbelievers. He that sows the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Now, this is not an excuse to, to judge people. It's not an excuse to be nasty to people. All it's saying is that's what the real universe looks like because God made it that way. So that's the second reason why we suffer. Then we said there's another reason why we suffer. You can be identified with one of these. For example... The people in Afghanistan tonight are suffering from a war because they are identified and in their history they have tolerated a group of fools 
to run that country. And while they personally may not have had anything to do with it, because they're Afghan tribal members, they are identified with it. The people that were in the tower are identified as Americans in the World Trade Center, and they were targets of someone that hated America. So because you are identified with a family, with a nation, with some other group that's getting plastered, you get plastered. And that's part of your identification with that. Finally, uh, a reason for suffering is the lake of fire. And people who wind up in the lake of fire wind up there because they have rejected and rejected and rejected over and over and over again the call of God and grace. So, deserve suffering. Now let's go over. Remember we had five reasons why we get suffering. It's not really easy to correlate with what's going on in our life. First example, wake-up call to the gospel. Some of you may have come to Christ through a suffering situation. So sometimes evangelism is the reason why we suffer. God hits us on the side of the head with a two-by-four. Just getting your attention, that's all. So, did we deserve the gospel? No. Did Paul deserve the Damascus Road experience? No. Who decided that moment? It was God. So it wasn't related to anything. It was that God called him, said, come here. And so there's the call of God in evangelism. That's one race, and it can be often a suffering call. We also have uh, suffering as a stimulus to growth. Psalm 119 is loaded with that stuff. That suffering... Pressure produces growth. And we all had the experience. We had opportunities to grow spiritually and we don't take advantage of it. We goof off, put aside this, put aside everything else goes, and then BAM! Ooh, now I'm on my back looking up. Got your attention. And that's how a stimulus to growth. So that's number two. Now we have even more weird reasons for suffering. One is as a testimony to unbelievers. An unbeliever will see a believer suffering and say, what are they made of? I couldn't do that. A friend of ours in the medical profession uh, is in a practice with a Muslim doctor. And they have exercised faith in, a, in their salary, is a part, kind of like a part-time job. And they didn't know that they were, it was only going to be part-time. They didn't have a, a visible means of, of a full salary. And this Muslim doctor is sitting there looking at them like this and says, Boy, I don't have that faith. That's right. But see, their suffering financially has ministered to that Muslim. It's at least raised a question in his head. Gee, I don't know. I don't think I have that. And both my wife and I can testify that when we were in high school, there was a movie uh, around Covatus. And both, independently, we didn't know each other at the time, but both of us saw that film, and both of us walked away from that film wondering, as we saw lions eating Christians, with their arms hanging out the lion's mouth and blood and gore all over the floor in the, in the Colosseum, we think, man, I don't have that kind of faith. That's right. You're not a Christian yet. So, 
testimony to unbelievers. Another reason, testimony to fellow believers, 2 Corinthians, comfort one another with the comfort wherewith you are comforted. So somebody like Joni Erickson Tata, who broke her neck, is a paraplegic, quadriplegic, can't do anything. What a blessing she's been. And you think you have a sore foot and you meet somebody without a leg. And that's, again, her testimony. If Joni Erickson Tata can handle being a quadriplegic, do you think you can handle a few problems? I think so. So that's the testimony of suffering to another believer. Then the most weird one is the testimony to angels, and that's found in Ephesians. Okay, we want, the, the lesson tonight isn't on this. It's to use this as an illustration of the fact that we get into a, a situation. How do we sort all this out? We, don't, we can't sort all that out. These act as triggers, so I can say to myself in the middle of a suffering situation, that shows that at least there are reasons why I'm going through this. I don't know what exactly is the reason, but I know there is at least a reason, if not multiple reasons, for suffering. And that makes it easier to bear. Because I know finally God has an idea. You know, this isn't random. This is not a throw of the dice that happened yesterday afternoon in the casino. This is a real plan that's being executed. I just don't know the details, that's all. Now, that's our situation, so that when we're in, in the situation, here we go in a suffering situation. Now, maybe it's deserved suffering. Maybe we've rebelled against God and there's an issue. So the Holy Spirit shoots up intercession to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this believer needs this, this, and that. We know not how to pray for as we ought, but he does. So, you can see this passage in many ways is expression of God's love, but it can also, and also sometimes when something happens, you can say, boy, Holy Spirit, you really talked to, talk to the Son on this one, didn't you? You know, something drops in your life. And it could be just as an answer to His prayer for us. So there's all kinds of these things going on in the background, and that's why when you look at the text, like 26 and 27 here, How we'll be all eternity figuring all this one out. And we'll have all eternity to soak on this, run it by, or maybe run a rerun. What was, it? what was going on when that happened? And well, here's what was going on when that happened. Boom, 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 boom. And, oh, is that what you were doing, Lord? Oh, yeah, okay. So there may be in eternity these kind of explanations that will take all eternity to see all the roots and the connections. So anyway, that is the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's that that's included in verse 28 when it says, and all things work together for good. Why do all things work together for good in the context? Because the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us. That's one of the reasons all things work together for good. Okay, now we want to conclude tonight with the last one on the bottom page 56 which is spiritual gifts now this isn't 
the thing to think about spiritual gifts, if, if you want to uh, maybe help uh, categorize this for you, you remember when you were talking about indwelling in the Old Testament, we made the point that indwelling in the Old Testament could be a carpenter cutting wood for the temple. Remember I said that even the carpenter cutting wood, he could have been an unbeliever guy from Phoenicia, because that's where Solomon got some of these guys from. Um, he, he, couldn't, he didn't know anything about Yahweh God and sacrifice. He, he probably knew his Melkart or whoever the pagan deity of, was at the time of, uh, of him in, in Phoenicia. But he had this skill that the Holy Spirit produced. Now, in an analogous way, spiritual gifts occur. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, the thing to remember about spiritual gifts is this. Well, several things to remember. One of the things to remember is every Christian has at least one gift. That's the first thing to remember. Because it's, it's a gift, the spiritual gift could be seen as your place in the body of Christ. It's, it's sort of a, your function in the body. You know, they talk about stem cells now. Stem cells are supposed to be cells from which you can derive different cells. You know, you can get a, a liver here, and you can get a lung here, and you can get something here from a stem cell. Well, folks, we, the, the body image of us as believers, we're not stem cells. We are differentiated cells. And that's where spiritual gifts come in. Every one of us has a different, has our differential. Jesus is the stem cell, if you want to make it that way. But we're, we're derived from him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it says, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let me get here. Okay. Notice in verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, and this is the key, distributing to each one individually as who wills? Holy Spirit wills. See? The Holy Spirit's choice. The Holy Spirit partitions us. He is the craftsman that is building the body of Christ. And he says, okay, here's a believer here, and okay, we're going to put him there. And this is uh, another person, another believer. We're going to put him down here. Uh, here's a third believer. We're going to put him over here. In other words, he locates us in the body. Now, we're not always conscious of this. But what it says is, he distributes to each one individually as he wills. And then it goes in, verse 12, the body image. And he points out, verse 15, if the foot should say, I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for any reason, you know, and goes through the foot, the ear, and all the rest of it. See? It's, the, it's not an organization, it's an organism. It's the body of Christ. And the spiritual gift is your place. It can be, uh, the, these gifts are listed several places in the Bible. Uh, this whole section from chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 um, are, are, uh, uh, cover this whole thing of gifts. Well now, one of the things to remember in the middle of all this is, ver is chapter 13. Because what chapter 13, this love chapter that's so famous in Corinthians, is stuck in the middle of the gift section, which is interesting. The 12th chapter is gifts, the 14th chapter is gifts, and in the middle of it you've got chapter 13, which is the love chapter. Now what is this point in the love chapter? 
He says, if I speak with tongues of man and angels, so there's the gift of tongues, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. You see, the point that he's saying here is this, that we, by virtue of our gift, set up our function. But, just because we have a special ability, that does not equate to spirituality. And people often get confused about this. He's given illustrations in chapter 13. He's giving the illustration of the gift of tongues. You can have the gift of tongues, it means nothing as far as spirituality goes, unless a person's walking with the Lord. A person can have a gift and not walk according to the Lord. It's a very sobering thing, and the production is zero. Wood, hay, and stubble. It doesn't do a thing. So, that's what he's talking about here, that spiritual gifts are nice to realize that they define our function. Every believer has a gift, or two, or three, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really go into the details. But the ability does not translate into spirituality. Just because you have a gift does not mean this. better way of thinking about it is, a person can have a position on an athletic team and have a bad day or have a good day. They may be very skilled player and have a bad day. Well, we can have bad days when we're out of fellowship. And we still have the gift. gift hasn't been taken away. A gift has been exercised, a gift has been developed, and just because we were, either, we were out of fellowship, carnal, something like that, then it's, it's a waste of time. So he goes on and he describes some of the gifts in chapter 14, most of it talking about the temporary gifts. You'll notice the, um, he's talking about the gifts ceasing, some of them. So the gifts have a, a, a cessation Remember we said that Protestantism believes in cessation. Not because the gifts are bad. It's simply that the gifts, once they accomplish their purpose, don't need to be repeated. There were foundational gifts. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, go back to that because that's a heavy church epistle, and you'll see that in Ephesians 2, 20, It talks about, here, two offices, but they involve gifts. It says, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Once the foundation is built, then the doctrine of cessation says that gift goes away, historically. Apostles, when they, the last of the apostles died, that's it. Well, you know, we the whole need apostolic succession. We need. Why do you need to continue apostles? What was the purpose of the apostles? To generate the canon of scripture. Do we have the canon of scripture? Yeah. So why do we need the apostles for? I'm going to write Revelation chapter 23. And it's interesting that every religious body that breaks off of Christianity who claims to have apostles always try to add to the Bible. Think about it. One of the largest groups in the world 
that talks about its apostles continuing is the Mormon Church. And in effect, they've parcel, probably replaced the authority of Scripture, the Book of Mormon. The Roman Catholic Church, with its idea of a continual line of the popes from Peter, have in essence substituted the oral traditions of the church for the authority of Scripture. That's why we have Mariolatry. So in all these cases, when people try to continue a gift, and the gift has actually stopped because the Holy Spirit stopped giving it, and they've perpetuated people in positions to appear like they have these gifts, we get in trouble. It's the fastest way the church gets in trouble doing this stuff. And that's why the warning is in here. We have already been established on the apostles, basis of the apostles and prophets. Okay, so there's the, the gifts, and we could go into all the different kind of gifts. There's teaching gifts, there's gifts of mercy. If you want just a sampling of it, I'm sure you, you're familiar with the passage, but turn over to Romans. There's, this, there's some of the gifts listed there. And you can think about where if you're not conscious of your own gift. And you don't have to be, you know, contemplate your navel and go through all kinds of things about this. It's just that the best way, if you say, well, how do I find a gift? One of the best ways of, of thinking about is chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 7. Um, look, look in, that's a good section, good as any that we've got here. Romans chapter 12, verse 7. If service in his serving, one who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, one who gives with liberality, one who leads with diligence, one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. See, some of those gifts aren't spectacular gifts. But you know... Of the gifts, of all the gifts, I'll never forget this. In, 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 when I was studying theology under Dr. Ryrie, I never forgot his comment one day. He said, guys, he says, that's back in the days when we had men studying the scripture. Now he'd have to say guys and gals. Um, in a seminary for ordaining people, that's what I'm talking about. Um, he, he said, you know, we can make a list of all the gifts in the Bible. You know the one that doesn't commit you to do anything? is the gift of tongues. Suppose we had a revival of the gift of giving. Oh, I got the gift of giving. People don't flock to that gift for some reason. Because it obligates. Oh, I got the gift of teaching. Oh, yeah? You know, we're, we have five Sunday school teachers short. Thank you. People don't flock to those gifts because they commit you. But you can sit there and flap your tongue in the breeze and it doesn't involve any personal responsibility. All these gifts here are exhorting gifts. You notice what it says. It talks about um, uh, exhorting, encouraging. It's, see, those gifts aren't spectacular, but they're part of the body of Christ. You probably have seen this in your own life. Many people have the gift of, of uh, in, in, encouragement. And you know how you can often tell they have the gift of encouragement? Because when they're out of it, they really irritate you. Because instead of soothing you by their excitation, they irritate you. Always opening their mouth at the wrong time. See? But they're exercising a gift. So think about those gifts because we all have them. And they're in God's, the Holy Spirit's, investment in our lives. So what we've done now, we've hooked Pentecost up with these 
works of the Holy Spirit now. R-I-B-S plus the intercession ministry plus spiritual gifts. And we could go on. And you can study the Bible and find a lot more. But this is just a sampling of the work of the Holy Spirit for which we can give thanks. Now, next, next time we meet together, we're going to deal chapter 3. We're going to start a whole new event. And we're going to leave Pentecost and we're going to go forward in time to the point throughout Acts when the church emerges as an independent entity from Israel. It's a very important split that happens because it defines how we handle the identity of the church versus the identity of Israel. Father, we thank you for your sovereign plan in history. We thank you that you work all things out together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose, that you work all things of history to your glory. Teach us to see your glory in all the circumstances of history in our personal lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Everybody hear what Laura asked. That the question Laura asked was, um, when you look at Romans 8, and the Holy Spirit is making an accession, is that the only connection of praying-wise that he has with us? And the answer is no. I mean, he has other... He, he spawns prayer by illuminating our hearts, uh, enlightening our eyes, bringing circumstances into our lives that remind us of different things. I mean, we've all had that leading of the Spirit. All of a sudden, you, you get, the thought comes into your mind, Gee, I need to pray for somebody. I mean, there's been some remarkable instances of that. and Maybe you've heard about them in your life, about for some reason the Holy Spirit puts somebody on your mind, just comes. Uh, and you have no connection. I mean, you may be driving your car down I-95, and all of you think of somebody that you met three and a half years ago or something. It's totally out of context. And you pray, and then all of a sudden you discover, wow, they were in a big mess or something happened. And So that's an obvious case of the Holy Spirit doing So the Holy Spirit's active in a lot of other areas. I'm just saying that in that case, it's interesting and very encouraging to know that the Holy Spirit is like the unseen commander of sanctification. Um, it's a, something that no other religion in the world has anything that remotely approximates it. Nothing. Islam has an absent deity that's so transcendent that he can't even speak in human language. So, and here, Christianity, an exact opposite, the third person of the Trinity indwells these bodies and is so close that he gets grieved when we sin. And in the middle of this, what must appear to him is to be a cesspool, he's trying to deal with it by praying to the Father, or praying to the Son, Father through the Son in some way, uh, praying to the head of the body. Uh, I think we need to straighten this cell out here. Yes, George. Um, I read a, a neat uh, statement this morning. Somebody was talking about uh, the, the guy that wrote the uh, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, when he was, uh, I guess he had the seminary, and seminary students were complaining that.
Well, as long as it, that's right. That, that's Bonhoeffer. I, Bonhoeffer has been raised. Uh, the, the question here is um, the, the idea of letting your mind drift and then sort of capturing it at the end. The, the problem with that is that, first of all, background. Bonhoeffer was really screwed up theologically. Um, he's, you know, he, he, people admire him because he did stand up to an awful the situation. I mean, you have to hand it to Bonhoeffer. He was a very courageous guy. But having said that, um, his theology uh, um, is not impressive. Um, but uh, that aside, the problem with letting your mind wander is that it's an autonomous transaction that's being allowed to happen. Um, it's, it's, it, the Lord Jesus' mind... Let's watch the Lord Jesus. When he handled the problem of temptation in Matthew 4, did he let every thought come into his mind wander around? I don't think so. He nipped it in the bud by confronting it with the Word of God. Yes. Take our thoughts captive. So I am not thrilled by that particular admonition to let your mind wander. I know where mine wanders. When you become a Christian and you you still suffer for any kind of sins? You have a period of suffering? Okay, the question is when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells, do you suffer for past sins? The answer going back to that, the diagram that I was pointing out, is that, first of all, important point, if we suffer for our sins, it is not suffering to atone for our sins. Now that's where a lot of stuff, if you go in Latin America, you'll see these people whipping themselves and this is supposed to impress God. Um, because suffering, somehow in, in that kind of suffering, I generate merits uh, to get myself ingratiated with God. Be careful. Any idea that our suffering for our sins is atoning for our sins is a direct heretical denial of the resurrected, of the, of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So don't let, that, that's just a preliminary. Don't ever confuse our suffering for our own sin with atoning for our sin. Jesus alone atones for sin. Our suffering is meant to sit. Now, the next thing is, good biblical model, when you deal with this kind of a bona fide question here, think of it. Let, let's think of, we've gone through the framework a number of years here. What is the mo one of the most historical, uh, and there's many, but Think of some historical biographies of the Bible. Now, let's think about men who suffered for sins in their lives. Who's an example of that? David. 
Okay? David confessed his sin. David was restored to fellowship with God. So he and God, after he got straightened around, were okay spiritually. David suffered, however, the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. He had a son, multiple sons from multiple wives that caused a revolution, killed each other in the final analysis, caused grief in his heart, and so forth. Now, how do we respond to that? Do we go into a big, big fat depression? No, because God says that he will not allow us to be tempted above that which you are able. So, okay, here I am. Uh, I've sinned. I've caused set-up consequences that are perpetuating now in my life. So now I've got an added baggage that I wouldn't have had had I not screwed up back here. But I'm walking around now with an extra load. So here I am walking around with an extra load that I didn't have before. This is my consequences of my sin back here. Now, I can get very depressed over that. Because what Satan will do when that situation happens, he'll stick it right in your face. <laughs> You're a loser. And, and, and run, it, run, it, run you into the ground, mental attitude-wise. And you see, if you allow that to happen, uh, you've been suckered. You, you've been suckered into something else. Um, what the way to handle it is to say, there is no temptation taking me such a common man and so forth. God is able to sustain me in the middle of that. Right, but, see, the thing of it is, we, we want to realize that the issue here is, it goes back to our thought life. And the scriptures emphasize the content of those thoughts. And that's why we have the Word of God, which gives us counter-content. And it's not so simple sometimes as, quote, casting out demons. For example... Uh, can you think in the New Testament of an example of a very famous Christian who was faced with suffering in his life repeatedly, who beseeched the Lord to remove it and never got an answer? Paul. And you remember what Paul did? He, he suffered. In his case, it was a physical malady of some sort. Nobody knows. I think it was eye problem. But all kinds of speculation on what it was that Paul had. But it doesn't matter for our discussion. Paul had this affliction. All right. He prayed to the Lord about that affliction. 
goes back to the chart again. All afflictions are not due to personal sin. And Paul's suffering in that situation, he came to realize, wasn't so much due to some sin back here. It was due to a tendency he personally had toward pride. And he had to be reminded day after day of dependency on the Lord. So what the Lord did out of, and we kind of think this is tough love and kind of cruel, but the Lord allowed whatever that thing was in his life to stay there. And Paul asked and he asked and he asked to get rid of that thing and the Lord said, no. You're not going to throw it out. You're not going to reject it. You're going to learn to manage it and deal with it. Because in learning to manage and deal with it, you learn dependency. And I think another great example of that is, can you imagine Joni Erickson Tana when she first broke her neck? I, if I were Joni Erickson Tana, I think I would have tendencies to, Lord, heal my body and get this straight. Or take me home. I don't want to be like this. A vegetable, dependent on everybody else. I can't even put my clothes on can't go to the bathroom, can't feed myself without being dependent on somebody. And, and she had to work through that. And look at, look at what it's done in her soul. You know, she's one tough lady that way. And if she did what, because, because the suffering, you have to go back, that's why I put those nine things on there, because when you deal with these kind of things, it can be a thought that has to be challenged and sharply rebuked like Jesus did with the devil. On other times, it is a trial that comes that Satan is, he's in back of it in the sense he's kind of shoving it in our face. So now you get the trial itself and then you got him manipulating it. So then you got to kind of separate out that. That's the idea of, here's a consequence. I sinned here. Here's a consequence I'm carrying. Because I did this, uh, well, I'll give an example in PRP. They're Christians in jail. Okay? Sin back here. Now I'm in jail. So now what have I got? i got some problems now. Because if I'm in jail, it makes me a felon. Now that is a problem. When I get out of jail, how do I find a job? Who wants to give a job to a felon? That's one of the problems we have in PRP. Some of these guys are great believers, and they change their life around, try and get them a job somewhere. Nobody wants to risk hiring a felon. So, here these guys go through a real trial problem now. They know they sin. They can't do anything about this. They've become a Christian, but the Lord doesn't take this away. It's a consequence for the rest of their life. So, they have to come to terms with this. How they come to terms with it is to take it before the Lord as a burden, but not an impossible burden. Teach me how to manage this. And the Lord will do that. And in fact, in doing that, managing this extra weight, it turns out often like it does in athletics. The extra weight makes you stronger. And it accelerates your growth. I can remember someone that we knew that was in, in, a, in a prison situation. And uh, totally independently of whatever he did in the, in the, in the prison he was in, he got stuck in solitary confinement for over a year. 23 hours a day in a cell. 
had one hour outside. Now, in this case, it wasn't something he had done. It was a little problem that was in the system. Anyway, he was stuck in that place, and we thought, oh man, this is so wrong. You know, the guy didn't do anything, and why is he stuck in here? Lord, what's the story? Get him out of there. Lord didn't get him out of there. Well, what we forgot was another little problem. Before he was put in solitary confinement, never could get this guy in the Word of God because he was so interested in television. Guess what isn't in the cell in solitary confinement? Television. Do you know when this guy had the fastest spiritual growth in his whole life? The year he was in solitary confinement. Now, how did that happen? So here we get all excited about this trial and the pressure and all this. And, and then afterwards, about two or three years later, we're all like, duh. I mean, what was wrong with us? Why didn't we see this? And he was the one who finally spotted it. You know, after months down the road of fussing about it, he finally turned around and said, hey, you know what? There's a purpose in all this. So that's the kind of stuff you have to follow. And, and so the answer is, God doesn't remove, oftentimes, the consequences. What he does is he turns the fallout of sin, which before we confess and get back in fellowship, is a bang-bang. It's, it's a chastening function. And then the, when we repent, it becomes a growth function. He transforms its purpose. Yes, Debbie. Yes, and we're going to get into that in the next chapter. We've done six things the Holy Spirit has done or doing for us. The next chapter, we're going to do six things the Son has done for us, and that's one of them. Yes, He does. He makes it. <laughs> very good point, Debbie Maine. Um, that it's encouraging to know that uh, we got two perfect intercessors for us. Well, our, our time is getting uh, late, so next week, if you look at the handouts, and it's going to be on several sections of the book of Acts. So if you look at the paragraph breakup in Acts, a Acts 1 and 2, and then Acts 6 and 7, and I think you'll be interested to see where this book of Acts goes. Okay?